there is now a way to contact the Wolf Connection podcast. Send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some wolves. He's joining us from a little ways uh, from Durango in Colorado. He was uh, a former member of the Colorado Division of Wildlife before it became Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He made sure that I I drove that home for 23 years. He is now the Wildlife Program Manager for the San Juan Citizens Alliance. He is Gary Skiba. Gary, thank you for joining Stephen and I. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. And thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I... We want to get your background because you you spent like like we just said so many years in the division of wildlife before the Colorado Parks and Wildlife merged and became one big uh, organization. What made you want to get into studying wildlife and conservation? Was that a, something as a little kid you were running around and wanted to do, or did it come along in your later years? Well, yeah, it was something that I did all my life. I was one of those kids that was always out turning over rocks in the stream behind the house or wherever I found and kind of poking around in the woods. My father was, um, uh, he hunted, he didn't fish all that much, but he hunted quite a bit. And so I was the, one of the four sons that ended up hunting with him more than anybody else. So that's kind of where my um, start or some of my interest in wildlife started from was just that early years of just being out in the woods as much as anything. And then I, I, I still recall the thing that um, got me into wildlife management as a field of of work is that I um, subscribed to Outdoor Life magazine, which is still out there. I, I checked on it today because I wasn't sure they were still around, but they are. And um, Outdoor Life had um, letters to the editor. And there was a letter to the editor from a student. And I can't remember what college he was at, but he mentioned it. And I still remember the picture of the Volkswagen van that he had. He had hit a deer and he just mentioned that and said, I'm a student in wild." life management at this university, which is a field I had never heard of. I wasn't aware of it until that time. I was probably about 13 or 14 at the time. So that's when I said, well, that's what I want to do. So that that's really how the professional part of it started. But the interest in wildlife and the outdoors was longstanding from as a very, very young child. Wow. What were the what were the the animals that your father and you went out and hunted? Was it sustainable? Were you guys uh, hunting for food or for other reasons? It was really, I would say legitimately, it was a, um, a combination. I mean, we did it both for the, um, the the recreational part of it, but also for the food. I mean, we ate everything that we shot. So we, um, you know, and a lot of it was small game hunting. So in Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up, it was rabbits and pheasants and, um, you know, a few other squirrels were another one that we would regularly hunt. But yeah, we did eat everything that we shot. And then as I got older, um, once I could handle a rifle, um, we did start to hunt deer. My father and his brothers, he was from a big family. He had a family of 10. He was the youngest. And um, they had a little cabin in north central Pennsylvania. And cabin is being kind. <laughs> it's kind of a shack. And um, anyway, we would um, go up there to hunt. Uh, hunt deer regularly. So that was that was kind of how I got started. I got into bow hunting at that same time. And I don't hunt as much as I used to, but I still do hunt. So getting into the rest of your career, 
What exactly does the wildlife program manager with the San Juan Citizens Alliance do on a day-to-day basis and, and the long-term goals of a program manager? So the, just as a, a little background there, the position was just created two years ago. I was on the board of the Alliance for a long time. And we eventually instituted board term limits. And right towards the end of my term, we decided that we should have a wildlife position in the organization. We, the guy that has been for a long time doing our public lands work tried to cover the wildlife stuff, but he couldn't get into all the depth and detail that we needed. So um, we decided to create that, that position. We advertised it. And, and for those who don't know Durango, Durango is, uh, has gotten to be a pretty expensive place to live. You know, land land cost in particular, housing costs are really high. And um, so we weren't really getting, at least partly because of that, we weren't really getting many um, qualified applicants for the position as a wildlife manager. And so since I was off the board, I started thinking about it. My wife was still working. I, so, I mean, I could have stayed retired, but I thought that I might really enjoy the position. And I have. It's been a total hoot. I've really enjoyed every bit of it. And um, the two things that I'm focused on most in Colorado are the reintroduction of wolves, which I'll, I can talk about forever. So as much as you want That's good. to hear about that, I'll talk about it. And then the, the, the second piece is bighorn sheep management. Those are the two main ones. There are also other things I'm working on, including things like Gunnison sage grouse, which is unfortunately a species that we're frankly watching go extinct here in Colorado and Utah. And um, also some work on, we're trying to do some um, wildlife inventory work in a little mountain chain that's to the east of me here, about 10 miles. It's called the HD Mountains. It's an extension of the San Juan Mountains. It goes south towards New Mexico. And there's quite a bit of oil and gas development, actually gas, it's coal bed methane gas development in that area. So we're trying to get better biological inventory information, how, you know, the birds that are there, the, the reptiles and amphibians, the bats, so that we can have um, a better way of um, asking the Forest Service to address the potential impacts of their development in that area. Because the BLM, it's kind of weird, the BLM actually manages minerals, so they do the leasing on federal lands, including Forest Service lands, but the Forest Service manages the surface, so they're the ones that are deciding where where and when there are going to be roads and wells and that sort of thing. So those, those are the main things I'm working on. So when you say you're working on wolves right now, um, I mean, I know there's there's a select few that are actually in the state, but before the reintroduction, what are, what, what are kind of the things you're focusing on right now? Just purely gathering info, trying to create preemptive strategy, or, or, or what's, what's that look like? What does that mean to be working on, on that project now? Yeah, a little background there is that I'm in... I guess it started actually in 2019, um, a group of people got together to uh, put an initiative on the ballot to reintroduce wolves in Colorado. And yeah, I, I know California has that ability as well. Not all states do, but uh, citizens can put a question on the ballot. And so I got involved with that before I started working for the San Juan Citizens Alliance, actually. And um just was helping to um, promote that and you know, helping people gather signatures to get it on the ballot and just kind of helping the overall management of that effort. Um, once the ballot initiative passed, which was in the in November of 2020, excuse me, the, um, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the agency that manages wildlife in Colorado, put together a couple of advisory groups, one a technical working group, they call it, which 
is mainly biologists and people with um, expertise in um, federal lands management and um, local land management as well. So that's the technical group. They also put together a stakeholder advisory group, and I applied and became a member of that group. And so that group has been advising and will continue to advise CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, on the um, what needs to be in a management plan for wolves in Colorado. So we're actually, we have a meeting later this week, this um, tomorrow and Thursday. So I'll be meeting with um, the other 16 members of that group and it's being managed by a consultant. And so we're um, developing very specific recommendations to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission, which is the policymaking body for the agency. So that's that's what I'm, when I say I'm working on wolves, that's a big part of it, the single biggest part, but I'm also working with a number of organizations that are trying to promote coexistence with wolves, that is to find ways to minimize the negative impacts of wolves on livestock primarily. You know, there's some concern about potential impacts on uh, wildlife like deer and elk as well, which frankly are not a big deal. If you look at the Northern Rockies, it hasn't been an issue where there are lots of wolves. And so we don't expect that to happen in Colorado, but it's all, it's those issues as far as coexistence goes and trying to make sure that livestock producers have the ability to both prevent depredations and if, if depredations occur as required by the ballot initiative, they'll be compensated for those losses. So what's your, what's your balancing act of how you're able to approach both sides of the, the people that are, like you said, there are some that are obviously worried about depredations. There are individuals that maybe live in the more rural, rural areas of Colorado where these wolves <clears> are going to land. They're not going to be landing on the, on the Denver side. So what's your, what are your goals and what's the information that you really try and provide to people who might be a little bit more leery about wolves being dropped into their wildlife, wild backyard? Yeah, the... Um that was a large part of what was going on during the campaign for the ballot initiative was trying to provide good information because frankly, there's bad information on both sides. And from, you know, I'm a pro wolf person. And from my perspective, there was more bad information on the anti wolf side than on the pro wolf side, but that's just my perspective. I think those on the other side might feel differently, but, um, and there is some bad information on the pro wolf side. There's, you know, exaggeration and about the potential positive effects. And as there is, you know, exaggeration about the potential negative effects on the other side. So that was a big part of it was trying to provide accurate information. And yeah, having worked for a state wildlife agency, I, I tend to take a very balanced, at least I think so balanced and objective approach to things. And so that, that's the kind of information I've tried to provide. I could, you know, be out there and just making um, statements about how valuable it is to have wolves back, which I can do and do do. But I also have done this in a way that, as I said, tries to recognize as best possible that there are these other concerns. And one of the things that one of the groups I'm involved with, the local group out that's based out of Durango, is we've tried to develop a dialogue between ranchers and wolf advocates. And um, that went okay for a while, but then um, when the initiative passed, they were not too happy and then COVID hit and it kind of fell apart because those kinds of efforts are something you just need to be in the same room with. You don't do it on Zoom or on a conference call. So those are the main things that I've been work working on. And that's how I've tried to, as I say, provide objective, solid information and try to uh, make the arguments about why wolves should be here. And 
that's that's what I've done. Yeah, as as unfortunate as it is when there's misinformation on the well, people who are naysaying the idea of of reintroduction, you know, it's equally damaging, I think, to make it out to seem like they're going to solve every wildlife related problem, and that that's also a a poll that we've 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 seen as well. So I think you know misinformation just is is damaging as a whole, but. From where you're standing today, based on what you've heard from residents so far and the plans put in place to promote a successful coexistence, what's the likelihood that Colorado will just go drastically different than the reintroductions of the past? In terms of the polarization and the tension and the growing tolerance issues, is there a chance that this reintroduction will be smoother and more sustainable? You know, I I think it will be, and there are a number of factors that play into that. One is that... um, in the case of the Northern Rockies and in the case of the Mexican gray wolf down in Arizona and New Mexico, those were federal programs. The, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made the decisions to reintroduce those animals. Here in Colorado, the voters decided that. So that's a start. I mean, there's still contention over that because um, the people who are opposed to wolf reintroduction are concerned about it. I, I shouldn't say opposed because that's not really fair, but people that are concerned about it um, you know, they, they feel like, well, this was really shoved down our throats by the people along the, the urban front range, you know, from Colorado Springs to Fort Collins. All the, and there, there's no question that the majority of the votes came from there. But, you know, the point that I always make with that is that um, there are also a lot of voters on the western slope of Colorado where the wolves are likely to end up who also voted for it. And it was definitely a more negative, you know, it was a If it was just the western slope of Colorado, the ballot initiative wouldn't have passed. The votes are recorded by county. So we know, you know, there were five counties on the western slope of Colorado out of about 22, I think it is, that voted for it. And so the other 17 or so didn't. And when you get along the front range of Colorado, the counties, Larimer County, where Fort Collins is, Boulder County, Denver County, and the other counties along the urban front range, most of those voted for it very strong so is that so yeah we do know you know very precisely what the number of votes were and it, it is yeah it's as i said no question that the voters on the western slope overall voted against it hmm. but it, it's it's interesting just to, the whole arguments that we see not just about wolves but about any issue anymore about you know people in certain areas sort of imposing their will on others you know, regardless of how you feel about that it's the way our system works. I mean, we live in Colorado. We don't live in just Western Colorado. We live in the state of Colorado. So, so those things do make a difference. And you know, it's the same in this county. I live in La Plata County in um, Southwest Colorado. And the county is sort of a microcosm of Colorado in a sense that you have this urban core with the town of Durango and, you know, and its immediate environs, which is fairly liberal, and then you have the rest of the county, which is there's a lot of ranching and farming still going on in that part of the county, those other parts, and they tend to be more conservative. So it's a, a very, very similar um, situation, and the outcomes are often very similar, too, in that the um, there are enough people in Durango that they tend to dominate um, the, any of the elections, like for county commissioners, for example. So in a county that does have a very strong conservative and Republican um component right now we have three democratic county commissioners so it's it's just it's like i say very similar in that sense but that's again that's the way our system works and i understand that some people don't like that and if they don't my my you know 
I can go back to Ronald Reagan when he said you can vote for your, with your feet. Or the other one is you change the system if you don't like it. You know, those are those are the ways I see it. So I think, you know, our, our system is what it is. And that's where we ended up. So what are the things you, you spoke about just before that are, I don't want to say extreme, but when you talk about the, the people on either side of this discussion about reintroduction and about wolves in general, what are the things that you can bet on both sides, both the pro and the, the pro wolf side that is, you know, myth, legend, whatever you want to say. And then on the other side that are somewhat anti-wolf, just like one or two things that you normally encounter that you're like, no, we have to temper expectations here or, or you know, change the narrative so that it's truthful and, and informational. Yeah, I'll start with the, the pro-wolf side. And the, the, the dominant one is the idea of, I'm sure you've heard the term trophic cascade, which yeah. is that wolves move into an area, they change the way that, really? and, and you know, well, that's one mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, the rivers. And the way that that happens is they change the behavior of the prey animals. So in the case of Yellowstone, the, the um, I guess I'll call it the, the tale or the story is that wolves came in and they caused the elk to behave totally differently. As a result, the vegetation along the stream started to recover. Beavers came back in and um, some of the vegetation, like um, the aspen trees, recovered from serious elk overbrowsing that was occurring before that. And those things did happen, but they didn't happen solely because of wolves. And that's the myth or the story that you hear from the pro-wolf side is wolves came in and, you know, we had rainbows and, and unicorns. And that's not what happened. You know, it's just you can't attribute all of what happened to wolves alone. There were other things going on including climate change that influenced that, including um, management of elk outside the park, which influenced the number of elk in the park. So there were a lot of things going on. And I always, I mean, every presentation I ever do about wolves, I always say it's complicated. That's always my takeaway is it's complicated. Biological systems just are complicated. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And to try to attribute any one thing to any one action or activity is just, you're almost certainly wrong. We'll say you're always wrong, but you're almost certainly wrong. So that's the big one, really, that comes from the pro-wolf side. And the other side, other part of the pro-wolf side, I think is, and this is, it's not that it's wrong, it's just a different perspective, is there tends to be more of a perspective of sort of the um, spiritual, ethical um, value of wolves. And that people, you know, just feel this kinship with wolves for a lot of good reasons. I mean, that's why we have dogs because you know wolves are very social animals they they came and lived with us and so um so we we have this rapport with wolves in the way that their whole system works all of their all of their family structure and everything else so we see that and we just you know some people view that very positively and view that as something that they would like to see more of so um again that's not a criticism it's not that it's wrong it's just a different perspective than what generally happens on the, uh, the other side and this this goes back by the way a long time ago to Aldo Leopold, who you know, I'm sure you know was the father of wildlife management. And Leopold um, wrote an essay called The Land Ethic. And one part of that was what he called the A-B cleavage. And he said, you know, there are people, and he mentioned both forestry and wildlife management, and people in group A see forests or wildlife as commodities, things that you, you know, you, you buy, you use, they, or you acquire somehow and you use and that their value is totally utilitarian in that way. And then he said, and then there's the other side, the B side of things, 
view things from more of a biological or biotic perspective, as he put it, the, a whole series of biotic side issues. And he mentioned things like what's the cost in predators of maintaining um, a really high population of deer. So he looked at it very, you know, holistically, whereas there's a tendency for some people to look at it and only in the very, the pieces that they see as immediately benefiting them. So um, that's part of what happens, what has happened in this whole discussion of wolves, people that, you know, view those biotic issues or see the biological value of wolves versus those who see the value of having elk that they can hunt or the value of having livestock and not having to worry about predation by wolves, which can happen. So with that, I can switch over to kind of the, the other side, the people that have been concerned about wolves. And, you know, there, as I said, I, I, I'm probably not entirely fair in my perspective because I do have a very pro-wolf perspective, but at the same time, I, you know, I do see the, um, the misinformation that has come from the other side. And, you know, if you look at the number of cattle, for example, or sheep, domestic sheep that are killed by wolves in the Northern Rockies, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, it's a very, very, very small percentage. It's less than, the best figures we have show that it's about one one hundredth of a percent of cattle that are killed annually. And that's, that means one in 10,000 cattle and more sheep. Um, it's one in, uh, there are three times as many. So it's three out of every 10,000. So it's 0.003% and 0.03%. Um, so, um, so it's a very small amount. And now saying that you also have to recognize that while that may be a small number, um, the individual producer who gets hit with that, who has wolves come in and kill several of his cattle, it's a big deal. Yeah, it just is. And we have that situation going on in Colorado. We have one pack of wolves that we know of in Colorado. It's in north central Colorado near the town of Walden. And though there have been four wolf depredations since the middle of November in that area. Um, one just occurred last week. So there were three that kind of were a cluster in from mid-December mid through um, mid-January, and then there's been one more. Um, and yeah, one of those, three of those kills were on one rancher. So he lost three of his, his cattle. So to him, that's significant. And so, you know, part of what we did when we put the ballot initiative together, and I'll get back to the, the, the issues that I was talking about, but I just want to mention this on the way by, is we required that there be a compensation program for ranchers. So, that, so it is required by the law that was passed by the voters. And so that's an important thing to understand. We recognize that nobody wanted ranchers to be hurt by wolves coming into Colorado, but we wanted our wolves back. And they were they are our wolves and they were removed forcibly. You know, and we feel like we, we lost something when we lost wolves. So that's just that piece of it. But getting back to the sort of the misinformation, one is the number of livestock that'll be killed. Another one is the impacts on um, big game populations. Colorado has more elk than any other Western state. And um, the three Northern Rocky states, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, have more elk now than they did when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, I say that, and if you remember back to my message about complexity, there are a lot of reasons why there are more. And it's not, it's not that wolves created more elk, that there are more elk because wolves came in. It's because of management efforts that the states made. And there are some places where they have too many elk, fewer, more elk than they would like to have in certain units. So, 
the wolves clearly are not decimating the elk or the deer or any other uh, populations. One of the things you'll hear is about moose in Yellowstone. And moose did indeed decline precipitously after wolves were reintroduced. It wasn't because of wolves. It was because of lots of things, including the recovery of the vegetation in Yellowstone from those 1988 fires, those huge fires that occurred in Yellowstone. So that, that created really good moose habitat. It's since grown up and it's not as good moose habitat. So there are fewer moose. Now, I'm not saying wolves didn't have some impact, but they did. Um, they weren't the only impact. We've definitely heard from some ranchers recently talking about coyotes, bears, you know, other critters being a real problem for cattle. How much does cattle depredation inform management of animals that are already on the landscape or does it at all? Well, it depends where you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, um, you know, in some states, Colorado has the most liberal and most generous compensation program overall of any state in the United States. We compensate um, farmers and ranchers, for example, if elk come in and eat their alfalfa or get into their haystacks, you know, whether growing alfalfa or into their haystacks. And we also compensate for losses to predators, to um, cougars and, and black bears. We don't have grizzlies in Colorado now. So we, um, so we do compensate for those things. And so we have that program in place um, and it will continue. As I said, we ensured that there was compensation included in the ballot initiative because we recognize that that was a real cost to livestock producers. So from that standpoint, it's a, it's a very important part of what we do. Um, you can argue about the um, if Colorado's program is too generous or not, and some people feel uh, some producers feel it's not generous enough. So you know it's it's uh, and it has worked for about I think it's about forty years old now the comp compensation program that we have, and so it's worked. It's you know, I think uh, there are people on both sides who will say it's not very effective because it's too generous or it's not generous enough. So probably a good place to be you know, kind of in the middle there but uh, we are working on a compensation program for wolves through the stakeholder process and we made we went through a series of alternatives that we voted on and we passed it on to the wildlife commission the colorado parks and wildlife commission um, uh, we did not make a consensus recommendation which they were not too happy about they wanted us to do that and you know, it's again it's one of those things the way the system works they're the decision makers they're going to have to deal with it so We'll see what they do. I'm not sure that answers. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. I, I mean, even just to go a little bit further into it, I think, I think if I were clear about what I what I meant to ask, and that was like that was a majority of what I meant to ask. But my question was really, and I just just came up when we were talking about this, you know, because we're always talking about the depredation on cattle and and wolves, and I'm like, it's it happens all the time for many other reasons. And I don't know if it's, it's, if it's equally being taken into consideration, but I mean, in wildlife management, just in the profession, um, is there a number that, that management groups would consider is too many cattle to engage in a reintroduction? Or would they use, is there a number that would cause them to say, okay, specifically because they are, they are predating on on cattle, we need to call these populations. I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out at, to what degree really is this a consideration? Should it inf how much should it inform conservation and and reintroductions or management? Yeah, we, the way that we've approached it in Colorado, and just a, another little piece of background is Colorado has an existing wolf management plan, 
And I was the biological lead on that plan when I worked for the Division of Wildlife back in 2004. And that plan in the end said that wolves should be allowed to live anywhere that they decide they want to live in Colorado. And if they are causing negative impacts, they get dealt with. So, you know, and so that plan took what I think is a very um, reasonable approach is that you can't really predict what's going to happen ahead of time. You can't say, I mean, you can look at the Northern Rockies and say relatively few cattle and sheep have been killed, but I can't tell you that that's the number that's going to be killed in Colorado. There's so many other things that can influence that. So we don't have a number. There's no way to predict a number. So to me and the way that our group, the stakeholder group has gone so far is that we're looking at what we're calling impact-based management. So we look at, okay, if wolves start to kill cattle, like they have up in North Park near Walden, you deal with it one way or another. And right now things are complicated because wolves have been relisted under the Federal Endangered Species Act. So um, we don't have complete management flexibility at the state level. So we have to do it within the federal rules, which means you can't, right now, there's no way to do lethal control of wolves. Um, now, there are ways that you can do it, even for a species that is listed under the Endangered Species Act, but that takes a, a process, you know, and goes through the National Environmental Policy Act process, and they can issue a permit to the state, or in, in this case, it would be to the state that would allow certain forms of lethal control under certain very limited circumstances. So, but anyway, um, we don't, there's no way, as I said, a priori to set up and say, okay, when we get to this much, we're going to start to, you know, kill wolves. It just, there just isn't a way to do yeah, it. Yeah. Like there isn't a reality in, in which there'd be, they'd be killing so many cows that, that management agencies would say, all right, we got to get rid of all of them. Is there a number, is like, is there a point where that would ever happen? Is that something you could see happening? No, I don't think so, because it would never get to get that far, right. first of all, because there will be um, some allowances for lethal control of wolves that become problems. Right. So and that's appropriate. I mean, there, there are people in the wolf advocate community who feel that we should never allow lethal control of wolves. I understand their perspective, but that's not the world we live in. It just isn't. And so... So, you know, there will be some form of lethal control with very strict limits. At least that's what those of us on the stakeholder group are pushing for, that there'd be very strict limits on how lethal control is implemented. And that it's not allowed, like you see a wolf, you can whack it. It's not, that's not what we see coming. So we see, as I said, very strict, limited ways to address the problem. I mean, we want to address the problems and prevent wolves from becoming a problem for livestock producers but we want to do it in a way that still maintains our wolf populations. Right. Did the hunts that you all witnessed in Idaho, Montana, Wisconsin, this past winter and into the spring, did have they affected any of the policies, like you just said, that you guys are putting forth and some of the statutes that you're trying to make sure that you have all of these things already set in place for when the wolves come down? Because I, I can imagine you don't want to cross that road where... There is a political figure that gets in and signs all this legislation that is automatically automatically basically going to war on wolves. What are some of the steps that you're taking, like you were just saying before, if there are other ones, just to make sure that basically you have all your bases covered? Yeah, and the, um, the as I said earlier, the situation I think is very different in Colorado in a couple of ways. One is that the voters did make the decision to reintroduce wolves and there weren't... Um, uh, um, the, the, the federal government wasn't involved at all in that decision. And we have the experience of what has gone on in the Northern Rockies to look at. 
And so we have been making the argument, those of us who are pro-wolf um, have been making the argument that you can look at what's going on there and you can see that it is not impact-based management other than if you want to consider the impact sort of a psychological impact, there are people who just freaking hate wolves. And so, you know, so they, that's really what's going on in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And um, they don't want wolves. They feel like they should never be back. They should never have been brought back. And so that's what the basis is on. And so the other part of Colorado that I see as being different there is that overall, we passed the initiative. So we, you know, overall, the state is pro-wolf. So I don't think, unless there are some major sea changes, which I don't see happening, um, you know, the it seems like at least recently and into the future, we may not have a, an, an election where we maintain democratic majorities in our legislature maybe this fall, but in the longer run, it seems like we're, we're headed to a more and more sort of liberal or democratic, um, using the party democratic um, system in Colorado with more dominance of the Democratic Party, and that that will continue to be something that is more pro-wolf than anti-wolf. So I think in the long run, we're going to see um, increased acceptance of wolves over time by the public as a whole. That doesn't mean that there's going to be increased acceptance on the part of livestock producers. But um, so I, I, I think it's just different in Colorado for both of those reasons. One, that we passed the initiative, and secondly, that we have um, just a different political environment in Colorado. I just want to bring up a basic question that is that is um, brought up a lot, and I'm curious your perspective on it. It goes like, if wolves are coming into the state naturally, why reintroduce them? Yeah, and that question comes up regularly, or that uh, argument comes up regularly. And the biologists that think about that and have discussed it continue to believe that it is unlikely that wolves will occupy Colorado without reintroduction. And you know, while you know that's sort of one argument about it, the other part of it is legally the state's required to reintroduce wolves now, now yeah, by the ballot initiatives. <laughs> so there really isn't a choice in that sense. Right. But as far as the biology of it, you know, the feeling is that it would be a long time, if ever, that wolves do reestablish. And part of that is because of Southern Wyoming. Southern Wyoming, I mean, you can kill wolves anytime you want with anything you want. And, you know, that, so any of the wolves that get across there are, those are like heroic survivors to get across Southern Wyoming and make it to Colorado. And so we don't expect that there's going to be a lot of that, but, you know, we, we, um, we have one pack of wolves right now. It's likely they're going to spin off another pack eventually. I mean, they're just the way wolves are, but, you know, we had a pack in Northwest Colorado, as far as we know, they're gone. And they, whether they were shot or how they were eliminated, they're not there anymore, as far as we know. So it's certainly possible that could happen elsewhere in Colorado. So we really continue to feel from a biological perspective that it's unlikely wolves are going to re reoccupy Colorado to, um, to, well, come to the point of what is required by the ballot initiative, which is a self-sustaining population. We don't have that now. We have one pack of wolves that we know of. There may be some other straggler individuals. There's rumor about that, but nobody knows. So, um, so anyway, the basic point or answer to your question is we don't think it will happen without reintroduction. We don't think we'll get to a self-sustaining population. So the agencies aren't relying at all on the the natural occurrence of wolves migrating from other states to promote genetic diversity at all. Like they, they're just, it's, it's safer to assume that those animals aren't there because likely they will be somewhere else. Or are they, are they considering them a part of 
the the greater reintroduction plan? Well, you know, they're technically not part of the reintroduction because they weren't reintroduced. But as far as those wolves contributing to the wolf population in Colorado, yeah, they will. And so, you know, that will be, I mean, as we move forward, you know, there will be some sort of criteria just to back up a step. Wolves right now are listed under the State Endangered Species Act as in an endangered species. So part of what we're doing with both that technical working group and our stakeholder group is to provide recommendations to the, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission um, about when you can remove them from that state threatened or endangered list or downlist them from endangered to threatened and then from threatened to a non-game species, which is what they would be classified as when they were happening. So um, that's part of what's going on. And those wolves that have come in, you know, migrated in from Wyoming, as far as we know, they may have, I guess they could have, no, the ones we know of came from Wyoming. And um, so, you know, once um, we have wolves and we're starting to um, move towards those criteria, as far as those downlisting, delisting criteria, those wolves will count as much as any other wolf. So as a biologist yourself and, and being in a wildlife managing position for all the years that you've been, have there been any discussions or have you brought up anything to the table in terms of, and we've had these discussions prior with the Mike Phillips of the world and people talking about really bridging the gap between the Northern Rocky wolves and those Mexican gray wolves that are so you know, perilously endangered. Is there any discussion or hope that this is this reintroduction will really feed that population and help them recover a little bit more naturally, or is that not really in the discussion at the moment? Yeah, the Mexican gray wolf comes up regularly as an issue. And just for clarity, so anybody listening understands this, is the Mexican gray wolf is a subspecies of wolf. It's not a different uh, different species. It's a subspecies, which, and, you know, they're, the Arctic wolf is a separate subspecies. They're now considered to be five or six subspecies of gray wolves in the United States or in North America, and one of those is the Mexican gray wolf. So same species, different subspecies, and there's no question that they are genetically somewhat different than other wolves. But part of that, realistically, is that the, that population started from seven individuals that were in captivity. So you started with a very um, small amount of genetic diversity to begin with. And so, you know, trying to... That's where you're at. And so they are different um, at, at a certain level, but they are still wolves and there are gray wolves. And my perspective is that it would be beneficial to have wolves um, moving back and forth all the way from Mexico up into the Arctic. You know, that that would be beneficial for wolves to maintain their genetic diversity. It's what they did. It's what they did before we got rid of them. And, you know, so the fact that there are somewhat different wolves in um, the very, very far south of the U.S. and into Mexico um, tells me that there are environmental conditions there that caused that to happen, that, that allowed that specific genetic makeup to develop in that area. And just as, you know, if you go into the Arctic, you see a whole lot more white wolves. The Arctic wolves tend to be white more than, um, than other populations of wolves. So, but there is this gradient and, and all those things, subspecies is just a really difficult biological concept in that it kind of just somebody looks at it and decides this is a subspecies because, you know, the, the length of the canines is slightly different or whatever it is, some skull measurements are a little different. And so, you know, at one time there were 24 subspecies of wolves described in 
in North America. And now, as I said, there are five. And so, you know, you look at that and you understand that the subspecies concept isn't something that's very, very, you know, rigid or, or can be defined very objectively. It's a somewhat objective thing. And we do have genetic tools now to help us do that. So, uh, but anyway, an answer to the question directly, yes, it would be beneficial in my mind. But the problem is that the Mexican gray wolf is listed as a separate entity under the Endangered Species Act. So it's treated entirely differently and not treated as part of the overall gray wolf population in mm. North America. Mm. And so there are people who look at that and say, we need to protect the genetic uniqueness of the gray, of Mexican gray wolf. And so in a, you know, people are concerned that if wolves in Colorado, and they're likely to come from the Northern Rockies, which came from Canada. So the wolves in Canada are slightly larger than the Mexican gray wolves. So they're a little bit different genetically. And so the concern is that these, these super wolves, as some people call them, which they're not from Canada, are going to come down and, and just go in and just wipe out the Mexican gray wolves and there won't be anything left. Well, you know, again, if you think about it historically from evolutionary history, that's what was going on all the time as wolves were moving back and forth between those places. And if indeed the conditions are such that there is a reason that Mexican gray wolves maintained a certain type of genetic structure, they should do it again. I mean, it's just that's, that's the way things work. And so uh, overall, for the health of the overall gray wolf population, in my view, it's important to have wolves moving back and forth all the way from the Arctic to central Mexico. Now, that seems to be the overriding, uh, I think, agreement or perception that it would be healthy and, and good for the population overall. Has there been any def defined amount of wolves? I don't know if we're at that stage because we're in March of 22. And I know we have another, I don't know, however many months until wolves officially land. But has there been talk or official numbers put out in terms of how many wolves are going to be placed in, on the Western Slope, how many packs they're looking to do, what types of wolves they're looking to, to grab, or is that still in the very early stages at the moment? Well, there has been discussion about all of those things. Um, there haven't been any conclusions. I mean, numbers have been thrown out like 30 to 60 wolves over a period of four years. But, you know, you look back to what happened in Yellowstone, they were planning four or five years of reintroduction, and after two, they stopped because the wolves were going gangbusters. So they, you know, they didn't need to bring in any more wolves. So it kind of depends what happens as far as how the how the wolves how they adapt to Colorado and how they start reproducing that sort of thing. So, you know, we have some vague idea, but it really is going to be an adaptive thing where we see how the wolves are how they're succeeding or not. And then adapt to that, and because again, the goal is to have a self-sustaining population. So, um, and I, I can't remember all the parts of your question. I know that was one of them, the numbers, but what were the other parts, John? No, that was it. Really, just because we've we've had this discussion over the course of a year and a half now since the the ballot initiative passed, and I don't think I've ever I've ever asked or we've ever asked. Has there been like you said, numbers have been floating back and forth about how many per se. Um, but, I, you know, in reading about the history of the Yellowstone reintroduction, they were looking for, they were trying to get obviously, you know, alpha pairs or mating pairs so that they could reproduce. You know, they brought in a couple of yearlings here and there. So I just didn't know if there was a classification of types of wolves, be it age, role in the pack that they're really looking to bring in or anything like that. But it seems as though it's still 
early on in that discussion. Yeah, and there have been discussions about those things. And so, you know, the technical working group did make specific recommendations along those lines about having a mix of ages. We don't have a goal as far as numbers of packs or anything like that. The, the current thinking is um, only, and this is really important, to, um, an important point is that what we're avoiding is any sort of discussion of a maximum number of wolves. So there's no cap on the number of wolves. So what we are talking about is the numbers that are required to go from state endangered to state threatened status to removal from state threatened status. And so we do have a number there that is currently floating and is not, not actually adopted yet, but it is 200 wolves in Colorado would be the point where it could be removed from the threatened and endangered list. So they would then be classified just as a non-game animal in Colorado. So like any other, so um, that is that number. And there are some numbers leading up to that to go from endangered to threatened as well. But again, those are not absolutely adopted yet, but they're likely to be very similar to that. But the most important point is that we are not looking to have, and those of us who, especially who are wolf advocates are actively opposing any attempt to put a cap on the number of wolves. So I think that's just one thing I wanted to be sure people understood. And again, it goes back to this idea of impact-based management. You know, if you have if you have 10 wolves and they're killing a bunch of cows, you got a problem. If you have a thousand wolves and they're not killing any cattle, you don't have a problem, at least in that particular context. So that's what that's the way we're approaching it. Uh, pivoting off of what you just said about the Yellowstone reintroduction numbers and and their reasoning for for stopping only after a few years. Are there any other examples of specific case studies um, coming out of Yellowstone that are being used in Colorado to make more educated decisions about, about this reintroduction? Um, not really. And part of that is because Yellowstone, of course, is Yellowstone. It's, it's unique. And, you know, we, you know, we are in a totally different situation, which a lot of people um, point to as a negative in the sense of, you know, we have a lot of people in Colorado um, we have a lot of private land. So Yellowstone, Yellowstone is definitely informative. I mean, we've learned so much about wolves from Yellowstone, you know, about the way packs function, about the way they pay, how they use the landscape. So we've learned a tremendous amount. Um, but a lot of that is likely not directly transferable to Colorado just because the situation is different. Again, things are complicated. But we do have... You know, we do know some things. We know, for example, if you look at Yellowstone, that wolves regulate their own populations after they get to a certain level. I mean, Yellowstone, the wolves took off. They got up to about 100, and I think 175 or so wolves at one point. And since then, for the last five or six years, they've dropped back down to around 100 and they've stayed there. And that appears to be the level of wolves that really can function well in that landscape with the prey that is, that's there, with the space that's there. So we know that wolves do that. And that's one thing we know, and that's really an important piece and goes back again to this idea of what, you know, why we wouldn't have a cap on the number of wolves, because we know wolves are going to manage their own population at a certain level, which also brings up the question of why you would hunt wolves as a recreational hunting opportunity. And it's another thing that a number of us are going to be opposing through this process. There is no biological reason to hunt wolves recreationally. There may be a reason to kill wolves, you have lethal control if they're causing problems, but you do not manage a wolf population through hunting unless your goal is to eliminate them, which is what they're doing, you know, essentially in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. 
that, you know, if that's your goal, that's one thing. That's not our goal in Colorado. So they're the only reason to hunt a wolf is because you want to kill a wolf. Yeah. Um, and as, as we were discussing before, we, we can't really with total confidence use the concept of the trophic cascade to convince anyone that, that wolves should be somewhere because it is much more complicated. And like you're saying, recreational hunting doesn't even make any sense. So if you, but if you are giving a pitch somewhere at, at a speed, at a talk, and you are giving a pitch of that nature, what, what do you say, what can you say about the, the advantage to bringing wolves back? Or, or what, what, is the, what is the overriding reasoning why, why we should be doing this? Yeah, and for me, it's always come back to the same thing as just that wolves belong here. It's that simple in my mind. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't resonate with a lot of people. Um, and I can make all of the biological arguments, whether it's trophic cascades or the effects on, well, one that we know is likely to happen is um, the effect on chronic wasting disease. We know, we know, and this is another thing that we have even more information on. We knew this before, but now we know for sure that wolves take the weak, you know, and, and sometimes the weak are weak because of their steep snow. So they do kill perfectly healthy animals like large, you know, bull elk, but it's only when they're in a condition or in a situation where they're vulnerable for some reason. So it might be better to say they kill vulnerable animals rather than just weak. But we do know that they will selectively take animals that are sick and they can detect that before we can. And so chronic wasting disease animals, there's been enough modeling work done now that we do know, at least from the modeling, there hasn't been any on the ground work just because it's so difficult to do. But for modeling work, it's pretty clear that wolves will take chronic wasting disease infected animals and reduce the, the prevalence of chronic wasting disease in those populations. So that's one. But, but and, and like I say, I can give all those scientific arguments or biological arguments that we have, but it really comes down for me personally to an ethical argument. We, we eliminated wolves and, you know, it was kind of our method of playing God, and I don't think we should do that. And I think wolves belong here and should be here. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm definitely on that same page. But speaking of, speaking of ungulates and the effect they're going to have on ungulates in Colorado, I mean, I know elk are a big, you know, they're a priority for, for residents there, especially residents who hunt. Um, what is going to be their, well, predicted impact on the elk populations? What can we, what can people expect to see happen? Even if they're not, even if they're not predating on an incredible number of elk, how are they going to be, are they going, is it predicted they're going to be moving them in different places? So where hunters once saw elk, they're not going to see elk. Or, or what's, the, what's the prediction on their, their total effect on, on that species? Yeah, the, um, as far as, you know, there, there are the two parts though. One is the overall numbers of the prey of elk. And again, given what we've seen in the Northern Rockies, there's, no reason to think that we will see a decline in elk numbers unless we allow it to happen. And again, things are complicated. There are going to be other things going on, but Colorado Parks and Wildlife does a great job of managing wildlife, and they will continue to maintain elk populations at a level that provide for that recreational opportunity. You know, there's no way for me to predict exactly what that will be, but again, you look to the north and you see um, Montana has 30% more elk than they did when wolves were reintroduced. And they, as I said, they have areas where they have too many. So, you know, so there's no, no reason to think that we won't be able to do the same in Colorado. So that's one thing. Um, as far as the, the um, behavioral differences, 
that is something that appears to have happened in, in Yellowstone. And again, it's part of this trophic cascade idea. Um, and yeah, there are people individually who say, I don't find elk where I used to. And some of those are because wolves did change the behavior of the animals. Sometimes it's changes in vegetation or other things that have caused that. But um, there, there are likely to be some behavioral changes. And so it may become more difficult or it may become easier for some people. You know, maybe that it may be that the wolves end up on private lands more and somebody who has the ability to hunt on private lands. Um, well, the elk will end up more on private lands and that they will then have the opportunity to harvest elk there more easily. So I, I don't think it's a very black and white. Things are going to go in one direction. I think as and back to my mantra is it's complicated. <laughs> so it's all complicated. How is the elk herd doing actually in Southwestern Colorado? I I heard from a student that was going to school there for something wildlife related and they seemed to think that they were concerned about the calving rate and that the wolves would just have a, a further impact on 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 that at least in that context does that does that ring as true to to you or what's what's the current state of of the health of the the herd in that area there are some um some of the units in southwest colorado that have actually across southern colorado would be more correct that have lower than desired um calf survival rates why is the question we don't know why and we honestly, I, I, I think if a, if a biologist is being straightforward and honest with you, they'll tell you that we really don't know what the effect would be from wolves. It could be that the wolves are going to take out weaker animals, that weaker cows, for example, that are producing um, weaker calves that don't survive. And so there could be actually a beneficial effect. I'm not saying there will be. I'm just kind of speculating. All speculation. So, but you know, there there are plenty of ways that we can think you know, that, that wolves could have a positive effect as well as a negative effect. So, um, but yeah, it is true that there are some areas of depressed calf survival, calf elk survival in Southwestern and across Southern Colorado that are of concern. Um, but, you know, those are things that it's clearly not wolves doing that now. And whether wolves would make it worse or make, them, make it better is, I, I think, an open question. I think it could go either way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, there may, there's some merit to that. Um theory i mean i know you're just hypothesizing but i mean i i do remember when john and i were in yellowstone we were talking to one of the biologists and and they did say that wolves tend to or at least a, a large percentage of the animals they're targeting are females close to or past their breeding prime so i don't know maybe maybe there's something to that yeah the um the, the data from yellowstone and from the surrounding area shows that hunters tend to take Human hunters tend to take very healthy cow elk that are in in their prime, like four to seven years old, and whereas the the ones killed by wolves are fourteen years old on average. So yeah, they're past their definitely past their prime and possibly past any reproduction at that point. So yeah, they're not impacting that. So um, but you know, again, Yellowstone, Colorado, different places. Yeah. yeah, different places for sure. Just touch on the. Because you are you're a member and an author of the San Juan Citizens Citizens Alliance, what's the what's the overall mission for for that for you for that group, and how are you guys are you doing the same things that you were talking about this whole time we've been speaking in terms of spreading knowledge and information about the wolf reintroduction? What what's really the overall mission for for the SJCA? Yeah, that that is part of it is to spread good information. It's also to participate in this process of developing the management plan and to follow up afterwards to make sure that 
management plan is being implemented in a way that brings wolves back to Colorado. So as far as wolves go, that's that's really where we're at. We're you know we are not going to be actively we're not going to be sitting there letting wolves out of cages. That's not our role, and it's not going to be our role. So, uh, but you know we'll be participating in everything that we can as far as the wolf reintroduction and reestablishment, and again monitoring the health of the wolves and how the agency is managing wolves and. I say agency, things are complicated now because of the federal relisting, but it will be CPW, the state agency in the end that does that. So we're doing all that. And, you know, the wildlife piece is only one small part of the San Juan Citizens Alliance. You know, we're actively involved in um, trying to maintain pure air, pure water, um, healthy public lands and healthy healthy economic systems. I mean, the the Alliance, and one of the reasons why I was on the board so long, and one of the reasons I really like working for the group is that we're, we're very, um, in my opinion, very um, collaborative in so many different things that we do. We're not out there trying to stop. You know, some people think we want to stop all oil and gas development. We use oil and gas. We get it. <laughs> we, and so, you know, it's not that we're trying to stop it. We're trying to make sure that it's done in a way that is sensitive to the environmental impacts that occur. And so we do that with everything that we do. So we have people working on water issues, air issues, oil and gas development, public lands management, and wildlife. So we have all those things going on. And um, so our our efforts are to do whatever we can to maintain those systems here in southwestern Colorado and northwestern New Mexico. That's mainly where we work. And you know that's what we want to do. We want to have places both for uh, everything wild and for humans to coexist here. No, I think that's a great, it's beautiful what you guys are doing. And anybody, I mean, we're going to promote the the websites in just a minute. Uh, but if you guys get a chance to read any of the articles that Gary has written there, especially about the bighorn sheep, I learned a lot just by scouring some of that stuff um, and all the work that you've done there. For you, per, For you personally as a biologist, is this one of the more exciting times for you uh, knowing that in less than a year's time that that these wolves are going to be reintroduced because I, I don't know what it was like for you for the the two plus decades you were there with minimal wolves I would imagine so for this what is this like for you as a, as a scientist and, and personally with all the work that you've put in over the years oh yeah it's, it's very exciting I mean I as I said I, I just consider what I'm doing just to be a hoot it's just great fun and so, so, and it's great fun because we're seeing this return of an animal that we got rid of that belongs here. And just that, that whole process and everything that's going into it, you know, besides the fact that we're getting to that point, to that success that I see, it, it, the process itself is just fascinating to anybody who's interested in sort of the, the intersection of biology and sociology, kind of. You're just seeing the way that people are reacting the way people are, are um, either opposing or supporting or and just all the mechanisms that are going on is just it's just really, really interesting to me. And um, so it's just been fun for me to work. It's been I've you know made some really good friends on this group of the, the st- stakeholder advisory group, people from the ranching community. At least I think they're good friends. I don't know if they think <laughs> they're good friends of mine or not, but I, I, I enjoy their company. I really do. And um, so, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. So all this stuff together, you know, it isn't just the biology of it. I mean, that's that part of it is very rewarding in and of itself. But the whole picture, as I say, the social part, economic part and the biological part are just I just find really, really enjoyable. 
That's awesome. My last question, Gary, for you is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Right. You know, um, I was fortunate enough um, when there were still wolves up in Northwest Colorado to go up there with a friend, actually another member of the stakeholder group and a friend of mine. Um, we went up there and um, we heard wolves howl. And um, there's not anything else quite like that. I mean, it just, it just, you know, brings these feelings of wildness, these feelings of, you know, natural beauty and just, uh, you know, kind of raises the hair on the back of your neck a little bit sometimes, not because of fear. It's just because of the wildness that happens with that. And that's the part that, you know, just thinking about that, you know, both I, other people in Colorado and my daughter are going to be able to experience that in the future. That's just really, really fulfilling. It's just wonderful. So I can't wait. I mean, I would, you know, I want to be there on the ground. <laughs> um, just do me, just do everybody. I really do. I mean, that would be, that would be phenomenal. Just tell everybody where Gary, they can go check out the San Juan Citizens Alliance, any of the work that you've done, either formally with the Colorado Division of Wildlife or where they can catch articles, things like that, where they can see the work that you're putting forth out into the world. Sure. Yeah. The, our website is sanjuancitizens.org. And um, that's, that, that is our website. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. San Juan Citizens, all one word, .org. And you can um, catch all of our stuff there, you know, whether it's water, whether it's wildlife. Um, you know, of course, I'm partial to the wildlife stuff. And I really, really appreciate your comments, John, about the bighorn stuff. It's the other part. I mean, I, like I said, I can talk about wolves forever, but uh, the bighorns are equally fascinating what's going on there and what we're trying to achieve there to get more bighorns in Colorado. And um, so that's the place to go, though, San1Citizens.org. Look for wildlife, look for wolves, look for bighorns, and uh, you'll find a lot of good stuff. I think it's good. I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's, it's phenomenal. And, and Gary, we can't thank you and all the people in your group of the work that you're doing. And you're welcome yeah. back anytime. Just keep us up to date on, on what's happening and, and you have an open platform here to come and talk with us about anything that's going on as we inch closer and closer to this reintroduction happening and pause on the ground. Yeah, great. And uh, next time I'll try to bring a, um, a livestock producer with me. Yeah, please. So you can, you can get that perspective. And you know, really. Actually, yeah, if you I, can, um, I mean, if you, if you, if that's something you want to share, we'd, we'd love to reach out and have them on too. I'll, I'll be seeing that group um, this you know, tomorrow and Thursday, we're having one of our stakeholder group meetings. So I will yeah. chat with them. It's sometimes hard to break through on that. I've tried to do a number of things with them. And some of them is, have succeeded, some haven't, but I will keep that in mind. I'll talk to them about it. Absolutely. Listen, we're, we're an equal opportunity podcast. So we just, we want both sides. We want everybody to coexist. That's our, that's our deal. So uh, Gary Skiba, thank you so much. Um, how's to all of you out there? And Stephen and I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. All right. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 